Chapter 15 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 15 The Principle of Relativity. Entia non sunt multiplicanda praetonicessitatum. Occam's razor. The recognition that the experimental method implies the concept of reality as monadic finds expression in the principle of relativity. The purpose of this concluding chapter is to make this clear. The principle of relativity is the direct result of a discovery due to experiment. The actual discovery was simple enough, although it was negative and to the conductors of the experiment disconcerting. It was that, whereas, in the case of all ordinary velocities, we are able to compound them, and the results of this composition accord completely with the mathematical calculations and physical deductions, in the case of the velocity of the propagation of light we are unable to introduce it into any composition. It remains constant under all circumstances and for all observers. Our failure to discover any variation due to our own velocity of relative translation is complete. For example, I may know precisely the movement of a system, say the Earth, relatively to another system, say the Sun. I may construct an instrument fixed in regard to the Earth, moving in regard to the Sun, accurately designed to register that velocity. I then compare the velocity of a light beam emitted from my moving system, and reflected to a mirror also fixed to my moving system, and in whatever direction I turn the mirror I find no difference. The interferometer registers one and the same constant velocity, showing that there is no composition of the two velocities. What is significant in this is not the fact but the interpretation. According to the principle of relativity it is absolutely simple, but the principle of relativity itself is revolutionary so far as the methodology of science is concerned. First then, let us ask, what is the simple explanation? In my ordinary experience I am able to compound velocities and I am continually doing so. What is the condition which enables me to do so? I do it without invoking any aid from my individual experience of muscular effort in moving. Thus, when I run down a moving staircase, I expend no more muscular energy than when I run down a fixed staircase. But I find no difficulty in conceiving and appreciating the increased velocity in the first case when compared with the second. And this velocity is just the sum of the two velocities, mine and that of the staircase, in relation to the system, in regard to which one staircase is fixed, the other moving. Now in this case and in all such cases, railway trains, passenger boats, aeroplanes, even guns and engines which use high explosives, the composition of velocities depends for its condition upon reference to a system at rest. And for the purpose of any composition, some system must be absolutely at rest so far as the velocities compounded are concerned. Not only must there exist such a system, but we must be able to utilise it, to refer our velocities to it, otherwise we are helpless. Suppose when on the moving staircase I had no fixed system to refer to, I could not compound the velocity of my own muscular exerted movement with the movement of the staircase. The condition would be absent and no experience could supply it. I may arbitrarily consider any moving system at rest, but so long as I do so I cannot compound my velocity with any velocity it may have relatively to some other system. If I would do so for anything like a moving staircase or train, I must have the earth at rest for my reference. If I wish to consider the Earth's movement, and compound that, I can do so by speaking fancifully of a translation of 5,000 miles a minute through space, but then I take the Sun to be at rest. 
if i am still unsatisfied and wish to compound the movement of the solar system itself i must take the stars or at least the solar system as at rest there seems no limit and in nature so far as we can see there is none but there is a practical limit it is only theoretically for example that i can compound the velocity of my own muscularly induced movements with the velocity of the earth's translation and when i do so in theory i have no possible means of using the result i obtain it is different with regard to all the velocities which refer to the earth as at rest for i am so constituted that this earth is my terra firma for all purposes of practical life i am able by making use of it to compound all the velocities in which i take part to compound velocities therefore it is not sufficient to assume some system at rest it is absolutely necessary as a condition of the compounding that there should be a system at rest and the earth is this system for human observation now precisely the reason why we cannot compound the velocity of light with velocities of translation is that for light there is no system at rest nothing absolute to which we can refer it no background against which we can observe it and it is not the slightest use to assume one because we cannot make practical use of any assumption newton thought he could compound velocities by assuming absolute space and time it was an illusion even in his own case the assumption was useless and his absolute space and time did not and could not enter as factors into his own equations of relative movement it is quite simple therefore to see what is the fact in the case of the constancy of the velocity of light we seem to think we have in space and time or in a hypothetical ether if we hold that theory an absolute system at rest but it is a useless assumption for the purpose because at most it is no more than an ideal background for thought it stands for nothing in nature which we can make practical use of as we do of the earth consequently what happens is just what would happen in the case of terrestrial velocities if we had not the earth at rest for our system of reference the velocity remains constant and the space and time units whose ratio is the velocity automatically accommodate themselves let me give as an illustration the terrestrial velocity which must be automatically accommodated in this way the people who inhabit tibet or the plateau of chile clearly have a longer day than those of us who live at or near the sea level the day is not longer at the expense of the night or the night at the expense of the day the whole twenty-four hours of the day is a longer period than the twenty-four hours of the sea level day for a day is the revolution of the earth on its axis and the circle of revolution in chile or tibet is outside the circle and therefore a larger circle than that at sea level if those circles are divided into spatial and temporal units those units must be different either in size or in number if our clocks registered millionths of a second we should detect the difference at once for example take the difference to be equal to ten miles of the circumference of the circle then if the circles were divided and the divisions measured by the swing of a pendulum through half an inch there would be a difference of more than a million and a quarter swings of the pendulum between the two it is clear however that the inhabitants of chile and tibet are unaware of or indifferent to their advantage if it be an advantage and it would probably be so if it were multiplied a million times but why because human lives are so contrived or evolution has so brought it about that such differences are automatically compensated why must they be automatically compensated because we have no absolute and utilizable system of reference things therefore which for human beings are one and identical or only numerically different may be totally different for non-human observers before we leave this question one remark is important in regard to what is known as the hypothesis of the ether it is only because it was thought that this hypothetical medium or stuff could be utilized as the required system of reference for the compounding of the velocity of light that the principle of relativity has rejected it 
insofar as the ether is the necessary counterpart of the undulatory theory of light, it is unaffected by the discovery that the velocity of light is constant. We have no absolute framework of reference, and ether, therefore, if we assume it to exist, performs no function, and affords no independent support to physical theory, outside that function for which it is postulated. The work of Einstein has been to turn the principle of relativity to general scientific account. This meant the abandonment of any independent objective absolute as the basis of physical science. It was at once seen to involve much more than this. It implied the change to a monadic concept of reality, a concept which had been treated hitherto, not only by the scientific world but also by philosophers, as the antithesis of a scientific concept. Einstein is a philosopher in spite of himself, and like Molière's médecin Malgré Louis, the consternation he has spread in the realms of philosophy may be fitly compared to the havoc the woodcutter caused in the orthodox medical circles. Let us see, then, what is the effect of the adoption of the new principle, and of its extension as a principle of interpretation beyond the special case for which it had to be invoked, in order to include all the laws of nature. The principle is, every law of nature, insofar as it is a quantitative measurement and expressed in mathematical equations, is measurable by coordinates chosen for a system or frame of reference to which the observer is attached, and which consequently for him is a system at rest. The laws of nature are the same for all observers in all systems moving relatively to one another, because all observers use the coordinates of their own system. There is no system of reference which is at rest absolutely, in relation to systems of reference which are moving absolutely. A system of reference is not a thing in itself. It is a system of reference only for the observer who coordinates the universe from it. The continuity of the laws of nature does not depend on the systems of reference, and their unchangeableness relatively to one another, but on the automatic adaptations of the axes of coordination of the observers, which compensate the changes in or of systems of reference. The universality of the laws of nature does not depend on the objective existence of the system of reference, but on the common source and uniform aims of the activity of self-centred subjects of experience. Mathematical formulae and quantitative equations refer to ratios, and not to invariable units of dimensions. They are meaningless when posited of a system of reference assumed to be independent of an observer's coordination. Physical science implies an active subject coordinating an external world, and the norm or standard of dimensions of that world is relative to the system of reference which for that subject is at rest. Knowledge is selection, but there is no unselected matrix and no unselecting subject, save as limiting concepts. Neither mind in itself nor nature in itself is a system of reference. Mind and nature are essentially distinct, but existentially one. Activity simple and indivisible in its being, and multiple in its expression, is the fundamental concept of reality. Its simplicity and unity as mind, its variety and diversity as nature, are seen from within, not surveyed from without. There is no without. The adoption of the principle of relativity means, therefore, that the subjective factor, inseparable from knowledge is in the very concept of it, must enter positively into physical science. There is no mathematical equation, and no scientific concept which can claim to be even abstractly true, when the subjective factor is suppressed. I will now illustrate the consequences which follow from this in physics, in mathematics, and in philosophy. Let us start with physics and consider from this standpoint the nature of the fact which has proved so disconcerting from the old standpoint, the impossibility of compounding the velocity of light with experienced velocities. For the system of reference which human nature has selected, light has zero velocity. 
we are accustomed to say that the velocity of light is comparatively to terrestrial velocities so enormous that for human beings in their ordinary experience it is inappreciable we put it in that way simply because we happen to have learnt by astronomical observations and calculations and reasoning thereon that there is a velocity of light which can be definitely and accurately expressed in terms of miles and seconds and with such precision that we can know it to be one hundred and eighty six thousand three hundred and thirty miles to the second in vacuo with a margin of error not exceeding thirty miles a second but this is a calculated velocity not a perceived velocity the fact is that for a normal human experience there can be no velocity of light or if we say that there is a velocity then though theoretically it exists yet for human perceptual experience it is zero it is easy to recognize this if we consider that were there a race of abnormal human beings who were sightless yet responsive to other influences than light then for them some other propagated influence say sound would necessarily have zero velocity the discovery that light has a velocity originally an interpretation of the discrepancies in the calculations of the eclipses of jupiter's moons has brought a vast extension of knowledge and given us a new unit for calculating the stellar distances but while theoretically the knowledge of this velocity is of prime importance practically it leaves us where we were it is not a new fact of experience which can be made to take its place within the coordination of our human world simply because we have not and in the nature of the case cannot have any means of introducing into our system of reference a background against which that velocity can be manifested and which would act as a standard for comparing it or compounding it with other velocities take an actual instance of the application of this knowledge and of its inappreciability in experience betelgeuse the bright star in the constellation orion is discovered by astronomical observations and calculations to be 160 light years distant from us and to have a mass some 800 diameters greater than that of our sun every 24 hours that star completes a revolution of the firmament if we then calculate the mileage of that orbit it is simply a sum in arithmetic we find that relatively to us that spot of light we name the star must be moving in the firmament at a velocity some hundreds of thousands of times greater than the velocity of light and this is not a very distant star there are some from which the velocity relatively to us must be million times greater it may perhaps be objected that this velocity is not a real velocity because it is the earth and not the star which is moving true but that is a significant thing the star ought to have this apparent velocity and yet it has not why not because it is merely a calculated orbit and our system has no means of communicating with the source of light independently of the light nothing which could inform us before the light signal appears that the signal has set out and may be expected in the way that the lightning informs us that the thunder peal is on its way there is nothing in the velocity of light that which makes it in itself different from any other velocity its constancy and our inability to compound it with other velocities is due to the purely negative fact that our system of reference the selected and organized range of our human world has no background against which the velocity of light can stand out and challenge comparison the result is that its known velocity is a theoretical reality which appears as though it ought to and yet possesses no means by which it can be brought into accord with our experience the principle of relativity enables us at once to put it right but at the sacrifice of apparent simplicity let us now take an illustration of the application of the principle in mathematics when we ask ourselves what is a straight line we construct in imagination the interval or distance between two points it seems to us perfectly obvious that in the case of any two selected points the distance or shortest line between them whatever difficulties it may offer to anyone who would construct it by drawing it and independently of whether anyone has ever succeeded in doing so even in imagination exists theoretically 
this existence appears to us so self-evident that we take its definition the shortest line as an axiom or postulate and found thereon the science of geometry but what does this imply it implies that for us there exists a system in which between any two points there is one and only one straight line and that this is the shortest line that can be drawn in that system between those points but is there an absolute system a real extension or space in which a particular straight line is absolutely the shortest distance for any and every system we have always supposed so practically from the beginning of mathematical science we have conceived this absolute system by the apparently easy device of supposing emptiness real and immobile as the necessary background of all movement and we have conceived geometry to be the science of this emptiness then possessing this concept although the straight lines we actually construct are constructed in and for a system moving in space and not for the space in which the system moves it seems that it must be with this absolute space that the geometry is concerned our straight lines are not distorted for our system but when their properties are to be demonstrated they are referred to the absolute system and this seems perfectly easy to do but modern mathematics has awakened to the theoretical inconceivability of absolute space and to its practical unworkability and the principle of relativity has come to the rescue it substitutes for a logical definition based on a metaphysical concept a purely empirical fact instead of starting with a straight line as the shortest between two points in a hypothetical immobile medium it starts with the law of inertia the universal principle that whatever moves moves in a straight line it takes its definition from the movement of a particle and not from the logical deduction of a concept a body free to move and moving freely takes the shortest path and this is the straight line but the straight line for one system of reference moving relatively to another system is not the shortest line for an observer in that other system thus from two facts of experience one that every freely moving particle takes the shortest path and two that all observation of movement is from systems moving relatively to one another we get a new basis for the science of geometry from our terrestrial system for example the moon moves through space in a complicated spiral but the moon is moving in the shortest path and there is a system let us call it the lunar system for which the moon's path would appear as well to be as direct as is to us the path of a beam of light let us now turn from the scientific to the philosophic aspect of the problem in choosing as an illustration a purely philosophical controversy the question of freedom and determinism we are dealing with what is still the crucial issue the supreme and culminating interest in philosophy today how are we to conceive freedom how are we to reconcile the essential contingency of mind with the essential determinism of nature how are we to conceive existence which in its nature and origin is activity and therefore freedom and in its development is necessity when we pass in review the work of the leaders in the modern philosophical movement we can easily recognize beneath their special problems and particular interests this fundamental problem let us see how under the influence of the scientific development this problem of freedom has been transformed everyone has heard of even if unfamiliar with the great controversy concerning the freedom of the will which for more than two centuries following the lutheran reformation divided theologists and philosophers into hostile accounts of determinists and libertarians the determinists calvinists jansenists port royalists certainly seen from the first to have the best of the logical argument for they pinned their opponents the libertarians arminians molinists to a position which they named the liberty of indifference and which it was easy to show involved them in logical self-contradiction and absurdity their argument was that if the will is free it must mean that it does not obey any motive 
that it must in fact preserve a perfect indifference in regard to the motives which would seem to determine its choice of alternatives, and that in the last resource it must be purely arbitrary. For, so the argument ran, we are able in every volitional act to distinguish the will which has chosen that action, and the motive, end, or purpose of the action it has chosen to accomplish. Moreover, a volition always implies that a choice has been exercised between alternatives at least apparently possible. Either, therefore, the choice is imposed on the will by the motive, and then it is the strongest motive which determines the will, or it is imposed on the motive by the will, which, indifferent to motives, makes its motive by arbitrarily choosing it. Hence the two sides found themselves contending not about freedom at all, but about moral responsibility. For if the will is free, there can be no moral principle. If it is determined, no moral responsibility. In philosophy today, this controversy is completely superseded. We are able to see what it was impossible then to conceive, that the problem was insoluble because it was propounded in abstract terms. In so positing it, philosophers were simply following the natural bent of the intellect, which only understands by analysing, abstracting, and fixing its terms. There seemed no escape. The abstract concepts were forced on thought by logical analysis. Because all willed actions are motived, and as the will is one and identical while the motives are many and diverse, so it seemed impossible not to regard the will as a thing, existing apart from and independently of the motives, and motives being what they are, and self-identical whether or not they are willed. Either then, it seemed natural to argue, the will acts in accordance with what proves to be, and is shown by the action itself to have been the strongest motive, and in that case to speak of freedom is absurd. Freedom can be no more than an appearance due to our ignorance before the event of what will prove to be the determining motive. Or else, the will is entirely indifferent to the motives, and able to act without regard to what may appear to be their strength of weakness, and then its freedom is a despotic, anarchic, irresponsible lawlessness. Equally absurd in its abstractness was the determinist view, for the motive fixed as an abstraction was no longer a motive. It became indistinguishable from the laws of nature which govern the movements of material things. The old problem of the freedom of the will had lost its meaning. Modern philosophy has its problems of freedom, but a problem completely transformed. Freedom is still for us the characteristic of mind in its opposition to nature, but we are delivered from a hopeless antimony because we are no longer compelled to conceive mind in its abstractness as independent of nature, or nature in its abstractness as independent of mind. Our problem is to conceive the concrete. Mind and nature for us exist only in their indissoluble unity. The new scientific revolution has made it possible to reconcile the concept of the freedom of mind with the necessity of nature. For the principle of relativity is, in effect, the insistence that reality shall not be taken as an abstract mind or an abstract nature, but as the concrete integration in which they are correlative terms. Hitherto the scientific problem has been to find a place for mind in the objective system of nature, and the philosophic problem to validate the obstinate objectivity of nature, seeing that nature can only affect the mind in the shadowy dreamlike form of the idea. Now when reality is taken in the concrete, as the general principle of relativity requires us to take it, we do not separate the observer from what he observes, the mind from its object, the agent from his activity, the subject from the object, and then dispute as to the primacy of the one over the other. There are for the new principle no clocks which purport to measure time in itself. We must always know whose time we are measuring. There are no standard foot rules by which to measure length, breadth and thickness of empty space. We must always know whose space we are measuring. This can only mean one thing. We must think the reality in which we are active centres of experience, 
and in which we are able to represent infinite actual and possible centres of experience, under the category of freedom. To suppose an ultimate necessity controlling our activity, behind us or above us, us not as empirical individuals, but as universal concrete mind, as Homer represented fate as the power behind Zeus, is to destroy the concept in the very act of conceiving it. The freedom of the original activity is not confronted with the iron necessity of nature, humbly entreating that some place be assigned to it, if only as the epiphenomenon which the old scientific materialism reluctantly conceded. It is freedom in the pure scientific meaning of a character, inherent in the nature of reality. The new science cannot conceive reality except as activity. Original activity is dependent on the concept of freedom. This freedom itself creates necessity in every mode by which activity expresses itself. Freedom characterizes the act, necessity the fact. It is the act which produces the fact, and not vice versa. The freedom, therefore, which hitherto has seemed the special privilege of self-conscious minds, imagine as somehow rising in rebellion against the necessity of an inexorable nature which has produced them, and from which they seem to emerge as an apparition, is in very truth the fundamental character of the reality which has produced nature. We have attained the concept of it in its concreteness, not as the empirical mind which may be yours or mine, but as the universal activity. And now it may be said, what use is this as a working scientific principle? It may be sound as philosophy, it may be consoling as religion, but will it advance science? The scientific revolution is the reply. Its dethronement of materialism, its affirmation of mind and mind's selective activity, its principles of coordination, and its systems of reference, prove that science no more than philosophy can progress, until its working concepts are concrete. The material atom has failed by reason of the abstractness of its concept. Science is turning, unconsciously it may be, but surely, to the concept of the monad. End of chapter 15. Recording by Julian Prattley. End of A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr.